Welcome to Everyday Church, guys. It's good to see you guys. Glad you're here. So, um, welcome to week two of this new series we're doing, um, Life Through New Lenses. We're looking at um, 1 Corinthians, uh, the letter to the church in Corinth in, um, in Scripture. We're going through this series that um, my wife, actually, Wendy, was the one who picked this series. And, um, and there's five different... Um, major issues we'll talk about in a little bit that Paul kind of deals with this in this letter. Wendy got unity last week. Um, this week is sex. So um, so my I have three daughters. Um, two of my daughters are back in kids' class for some reason. They didn't want to be in the room when Dad was talking about this stuff. So my oldest daughter, Emma, is uh, she's in college up in Binghamton University up in New York. And uh, she's been looking for, wanting to find a church up in Binghamton, and, uh, and so she found one to visit. And a couple of months ago, she went to visit this church, and uh, her first Sunday there, she walked in, joined in the music at the beginning, and then the topic was um, sex. The pastor and his wife got up on stage, and they spent like 45 minutes talking, both of them, um, about all kinds of stuff related to sex. And Emma was super uncomfortable, and she was like texting Wendy back in the kids' class about what was going on, and... We're thinking, like, how crazy is it for your first Sunday to walk into a church <laughs> and that to be the topic? And I, I just wanted, I know some of you guys, this is your first Sunday here. <laughs> so I just want to name this. Like, this is a crazy Sunday to walk into church. And I want to assure you that we do not talk about this, like, a whole message on sex very often. In fact, this is maybe the first one in several years. So, um, so just, you know, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. It's not going to get too crazy. So, um. So nothing to worry about, um, I don't think. So one other thing that um, you need to know just to kind of help you be comfortable with um, this space today. So Wendy was, my wife was telling our daughter Emma that I'm, you know, that we're doing the sex talk or whatever today. Sex talk's a terrible thing to call this. It's not really that. But, you know, we're having this message talking about First um, Corinthians and sex or whatever. And my daughter started laughing. And she followed it up by saying, like, you're having dad do the message on sex? He can't even use the proper words for body parts. <laughs> so just, I don't know, I, I know there's a few of you out there that can identify with this, but I grew up in a family where you don't use the right word for body parts. For instance, and I'm not going to make any eye contact while I say this, but um, we referred to certain male body parts as the pee-pee diddle. <laughs> I still call it that. I'm sorry, but I can't bring myself to use the right words. So, so if you're uncomfortable, don't worry because I'm way more uncomfortable <laughs> this morning than uh, any of the rest of you guys. So I'm glad you're here. All right. We had to start with some laughter here because this is just um, it's funny stuff. But I'm really glad that um, we're working through this series, looking at this letter um, that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and, um, and getting to process some of the stuff that we encounter here. So the series, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians, called Life Through New Lenses, and the idea, the concept behind this series is this idea that once we, f we begin to follow Jesus and we, we kind of come into relationship with Jesus and with God, um, we start to see things through a gospel lens. So we see the world and the things that are going on around us in our own lives. We begin to look at those things a different way. We see them the way God does. And gradually through the course of our life, we begin to see things through these new um, lenses. And that is uh, the concept, really, that we're getting into 
um, in this series. So last week, Wendy introduced us to this first letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church uh, in Corinth. And uh, she got us into the idea and what was going on and, s- and laid some groundwork for us that Corinth was this city located in what is now modern-day Greece. Um, it was a large city full of Greek and Roman people and surrounded by Greek and Roman culture. Uh, it was a port city, so lots of, uh, lots of ships coming in and out, bringing people and products of all different kinds. Um, there, was, there were lots of temples to different, um, different gods, which was part of the sex issues that were going on in that city. Um, some of the industry, the sex industry that was happening there. Lots of money, lots of intellectuals, lots of good stuff going on in the city, and lots of bad stuff. And so Wendy kind of c- got us processing through um, some, of this, uh, some of the ideas that we encounter as we get to know these people in, uh, in Corinth. So the Apostle Paul had traveled to this city and, uh, and God used him to start a new church there. And so he was teaching about Jesus, and people began to follow um, Jesus as a result of that. And so this new church starts, and Paul spends a year and a half or so in this city helping this church get off the ground. And then he moves on and heads to other cities in the area to start other uh, and churches. And over time, this church began to grow and also to encounter a variety of different issues as they were trying to figure out what it looks like as a group of people to follow Jesus. And Paul hears rumors of this and gets reports of what's going on here, and he writes this letter to these people in this church, in this city, to help them process through and understand God's perspective on things and to help identify how to get themselves out of some of the issues that they were dealing with. Um, So it's important for us to remember a variety of different things as we're processing. Wendy talked a lot about this last week. When we're looking at letters in Scripture, there's a few different things that we need to keep in our mind. One, it was written in a totally different language, a very old language that's not used anymore. And so everything that we're reading is translated from these older languages into our modern sort of context. And so we need to remember that, that there's challenges, as we know, just being a church that speaks multiple languages. We know there's challenges in translating and finding the right words. And so we have to hold that in our mind as we're looking through and understanding and trying to process through um, these letters. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that this was 2,000 years ago. So this letter has been preserved for us for 2,000 years. So this was Paul writing to a very specific context in a very specific group of people to deal with very specific issues 2,000 years ago. And so the work that we have for us is to process through these letters and to begin to understand and try to understand how does that relate to us today. So we're looking at a letter and context from 2,000 years ago and trying to understand the principles and the realities in that world and how they relate to our context and our city and our lives individually and who we are um, as the church. So those are some, stu- some things that we just need to keep in our minds as we're processing um, through uh, things like 1 Corinthians as we're digging into this letter. So uh, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is made up of five distinct um, sections dealing with five major issues that were going on in this church at that time. And so Wendy last week talked about unity and how important it is for us to be united individually and collectively as the church, to not allow division to creep in between us and one another and also other churches and what God is up to in our community and how critical that is. And then today we're getting into um, the second issue that uh, Paul deals with in the course of his letter. So um, we're going to take a a moment here to check a video out. So we've introduced you guys over the past year 
uh, if you've been around, to thebibleproject.com, which is a website and a project to, uh, to really assist in um, processing through and understanding scripture. And they have a number of really incredible video resources and study materials that we've been trying to find ways to use because they're really um, just that good. So they have an incredible video on 1 Corinthians that really gets into and lays the foundation for what we've been talking about. So I, we can't show the whole thing. We're not going to show the whole thing this morning. We're going to show a couple of minute clip that deals with the first, what Wendy talked about last week, and then the stuff that we're getting into today. I suspect over the coming weeks, uh, as we get into other, the other issues, that we'll look at more of this video as we go along. But uh, for now, I want us to um, check out that video from the Bible Project. So let's watch this. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts, along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters one through four, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrongheaded this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, 
so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. It's good stuff. Those, um, I encourage you to check out thebibleproject.com, their website. They've got lots of great um, videos and resources, and uh, there's a bunch more to that video, which I suspect we'll check out in um, the coming weeks. One of the things that I love about um, the way they present things, they work really hard to give context and really kind of help set the stage for processing through and reading scripture, uh, and also helping draw out some of the major themes, seems, uh, themes that we encounter as we're sorting through um, different things that we encounter in scripture. So the teaching for today from Paul's letter comes from chapters five to seven. And I know I encourage some of you guys, or encourage you guys last week to read that if you have a chance. I think a few of you did. Um, Mike and I were chatting earlier, and he was like, oh my gosh, some crazy stuff in there. So, um, so if you got to read it, you know, we're going to have some fun kind of talking through some of this stuff. Um, not going to get into everything that Paul deals with in there, but um, we're going to ha- uh, get into a variety of things. So in the process of this discussion, these three chapters where Paul is trying to deal with and get to the root issues that are going on um, related to sex in the church in Corinth, he talks about a lot of different issues. So sexual immorality or misconduct, singleness, marriage, um, the body of Christ. He talks about the temple of God, divorce, resurrection. So a lot of those things we would connect normally to the topic or concept of uh, the idea of sex, but a lot of that stuff we wouldn't connect to sexuality. We wouldn't think of um, of talking maybe about resurrection or the body of Christ or some of those things. But Paul uh, spends a lot of time making this sort of deeper connection to help us understand how critical it is for us to process through um, the what God intends for us as, um, as Christians and as sexual beings. So we can't get into all that stuff today, but we're going to try to dive into some of the deeper um, concepts that Paul processes through. So as I just sort of processing and, um, and studying and praying and preparing for this, it, uh, it strikes me as odd, really, and, and more sad, I think, um, that if, if we're honest, any of us, and we made a list of the things um, that have hurt us or hurt other people that we know, our friends or family or people that we know in the world, if we were to make a list of like the big things that have injured and wounded um, us, I suspect that for most of us we would put sex, something related to sex, at the top of that list if we're really honest about understanding the brokenness of the world and the way in which people are wounded, then I suspect that we would put sex at the top of that list or very close to it. And yet our society still, even though there's so much danger related to sex, our society fiercely defends individual personal right to sexual freedom. No one gets to tell you what to think about sex or how to process it in the course of growing up or living your life. No one gets to limit your sexual freedom. So I come from, uh, from a family that was deeply broken by, um, by sexual sin. I have countless friends who are deeply broken by sexual sin. I'm, uh, I'm quite sure you could make a list of people in your life, maybe it w- was you, that have received um, injury and wounded in different ways um, by sexual sins and other people's sexual behavior. Um, and yet we spend so little time talking about it and processing through and trying to help one another sort of sort through the ramifications of choices that people make when it comes to to sexuality. 
So if you look through um, history at the goings-on of humans over the thousands of years that we have inhabited this planet, um, if you spend time listening, really listening to your friends, if you let yourself uh, sort of open yourself up to the stories of our fellow humans related to sexual sexuality and what people have experienced, then you slam into the reality that sex, while it can be a blessing and a gift, it is something that has deeply harmed so many people in this world. So my, um, my mother, many of in her generation, were raised to believe, they were taught that sex is bad. There's nothing good about sex, something you have to do, but it's this terrible thing. And, uh, and that's what they were taught, that sex in all of its forms is bad. Um, I think that's probably why she raised me not to use the right words for things, because it was some way to protect me from this sort of evil thing over here. Um, but in fact, I, sex isn't a bad thing. But like most things, unless we submit it to God and we pursue his heart for how he intends for us to live out our sexual lives, then, um, then there's an incredible amount um, of danger. And like everything, I think, in our lives, the greatest hope that we have for um, for sexuality to be something good, the greatest potential for sexual wholeness in our life and the and the lives of the people around us is for for us to submit our sexuality to God. Ultimately, for every one of us to submit our, our sexuality to God, offering ourselves and submitting every part of ourselves, even our sexuality, to God and His will and what He desires. So, um, at the end of the walk series, which we finished up a couple of weeks ago, Wendy uh, led us through a process for making really big decisions in our life as we process sort of these larger things that we face through the course of our days. Uh, and so she gave us this kind of framework for making wise choices. And the starting point of the process that she taught us was this, um, this idea of a prayer of indifference. So this type of prayer that we pray to submit things in our lives to God. And it's a conscious sort of prayer that we pray to offer things to God that we're struggling with or we're wanting to hold on to our own sort of will and way. And so I, um, I'm thinking that is a good way for us to get started this morning as we're talking about this stuff. So I want to share with you um, the prayer of indifference that I use. There's lots of different versions of this prayer, uh, but here is the version that, um, that I keep handy. I actually keep it in my journal. And anytime I'm trying to struggling with something or feel like God's put something on my heart, he wants me to work through then I'll take time and just use this. Um, this is a starting point for a prayer of indifference. So it goes, um, goes like this. You get that up there for us, Joy? <laughs> okay. She was reading ahead, I think. She's so excited about the topic today. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, the prayer of indifference that I use. It's really a, a sort of a launching um, point for um, this type of prayer. So, Father, I am indifferent to every outcome except your will. I want nothing more or less than your desire for what I do. And then I customize the rest of the prayer after that to, um, to whatever it is that I'm wrestling with. So it might go something like, I want nothing more or less than what you desire for what I do with my body or in my relationships with the people around me or in my dating relationships or my marriage or whatever. Um, but praying this prayer as a process of surrendering something, turning something over to God and letting him know, I desire, God, what you desire. That's what I want. I, I may not know how to do that, but this is my prayer that I would have the strength to surrender this area of my life to you. So what, um, what I would like to do is just I'm going to give us two minutes of silence, and I'll time it for us so you don't have to worry. Um, time it, give us two minutes of silence, and just to sit with this, um, 
this prayer of indifference, this starting point, really, that Wendy recommended we use for, for big things like sexuality. Um, and just, I would encourage you, close your eyes, take some breaths, just relax, and, uh, and use this as a way to talk to God about this. Um, whatever your situation in life, whether you're single or married, um, w- whatever it is that you're processing through, questions that you're asking, or, um, or think decisions that you need to make in the course of your, your days, that we would just um, surrender that stuff to God. So I'm going to give us two minutes and um, just relax, take some breaths, and, and pray this prayer. Father, um, we, um, we ask you that you would give us the strength to do this, to be indifferent uh, to every outcome except your will, to surrender our lives, even um, our sexuality, our bodies, to you. Uh, give us the strength um, to be true to this request that we want nothing more or less than your desire for what we do with our bodies, what we do with our relationships, um, and our interactions with the world and the people around us. Give us the strength to do it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <coughs> okay, so um, so Paul, uh, you got a glimpse of this in um, the video that, um, uh, as they talked about chapter 5. When you get to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Basically, um, Paul, basically, Paul just says to the Christians there in Corinth, there's some crazy stuff going on in your church. There's some crazy sex stuff happening, and he gives a couple of examples. The first one is of a man who is sleeping with his stepmother, um, and then the other example is of people in the church that, have, uh, that are participating essentially in the sex industry of their city, which largely revolved around uh, the different temples to different gods, and so that's kind of where the prostitutes would congregate, and that was a part of this sort of big thing that was going on in the city, this interaction between money and sex. And people in the church were, uh, were participating in that. And so Paul immediately just calls out, there's some crazy stuff going on, and we, uh, we've got to talk about this stuff. So this is where some of the backstory and the context really helps us understand um, what's going on here, the context and understanding the city, but also the people that are a part of this church that Paul's talking about. So as we mentioned, the city is made up of Greek and, um, and Roman people and Greek from Greek and Roman culture. So, uh, so in Greek and Roman culture, their attitude towards, uh, towards sex was pretty much anything goes. And so you had all sorts of situations of, uh, of sex with slaves, sex with prostitutes, sex really with whoever, there was a minor limitation um, in having sex with somebody else's husband or wife. But even that wasn't really much of a limitation. So anything goes. Um, it was very much uh, an anything goes sort of city full of lots of different sexual options and sex- sexual temptations, which strikes me as a bit similar to our context in our city, uh, in New York City, to be honest. Sexual purity and integrity was not something that people were talking about. It was not a concept that people in Roman and Greek culture were processing. What does it mean to be to have sexual integrity, to be sexually pure? Um, and so that, that was not at all what was going on in the city. So now you think about the Christians that made up this church. So there's a church, a gathering like this, in this city, uh, and Christians. Who were these Christians? Well, they were people who grew up in Greek and Roman culture. They were people from that city that when Paul came there and began to teach about Jesus, they were interested. They began to listen to Paul, eventually giving their lives to Jesus and becoming a part of the family of God and a part of the church there. So the people that are a part of this church grew up in this culture. 
with these attitudes and these values related to, uh, to sex and sexuality. So I think that we, um, we'd all admit, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you spent much time um, following Jesus, then I think you'd admit that when we become a believer, when we become a Christian, we don't just shed all of our culture and society's views and attitudes and values. You don't just come up out of the baptism water and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm just like Jesus. I don't care about those things. The values of my society, whatever, they don't touch me. We grow up in this context, and these things become deeply ingrained in who we are. And becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't just suddenly change that. And so these people are, are no different than that. They had grown up in this Roman and Greek culture with this attitude of anything goes when it comes to sexuality. And so they weren't convicted that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue for them to just kind of roll the way that the culture and society rolled. And so it's not a surprise that Paul would encounter these um, various issues and that sort of thing related to sexuality. So many of them had lived entire lives. They're not, uh, you know, all young when they become Christians. So many of them had lived long lives up to this point without any kind of sexual limitation, um, doing what they were raised really to do in the culture and the environment that they were in. So it's not a surprise that the church then is reflecting some of the challenges and some of the things that are going on in the world uh, around them and the culture around them. That people in the church were making choices that differ from what God um, intends for us as, um, as sexual beings. So there's another entire um, aspect to this when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. So what about the idea of grace? So we're taught this is a critical part of following Jesus is this freedom that we receive in Christ. The grace that we have, that God has removed our sin from us and doesn't hold our sin against us. And so these people are coming into, they're coming out of this culture and they're coming into a church that is all about forgiveness and acceptance and grace that we receive from God. And so these two things merging create this very interesting challenge that the church is, um, in, is facing. That we're free in Christ and yet um, come from a culture with a different attitude about sexuality. So Paul gets into the, uh, to the heart of the talk um, about, about sex in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 and verses 12 to 18. And so we're going to process through um, this section of, uh, of the letter. So in verses 12 and 13, um, Paul quotes some common phrases that were kind of going around, an attitude that was floating around in the church, this church in Corinth. And uh, so check around. These are two different sayings that uh, the people in this church were, um, were using. So the first one was, and Paul is quoting, uh, quoting them, I have the right to do anything. That was the first thing that the people were saying. The second uh, line, and this was just kind of a, um, a phrase that was used to justify a lot of different things, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both in the end. So that first line, I have the right to do anything, that was actually something that rose out of this idea of grace and forgiveness that we're free in Christ. Everything is permissible. We aren't restricted the way we once were. So it's sometimes translated, all things are permissible. So this concept rose up in the Christian community related to this idea of grace and acceptance and forgiveness. So once we're forgiven in Jesus, God no longer holds our actions against us. We're free in Jesus. So what does it matter what we do? We, we have received grace, right? We're free. So the second statement um, that, uh, that Paul quotes here is another line that was being thrown around, food for the stomach and stomach for food. But it was, it was used for lots more than just food. It wasn't really talking about food. Essentially, the idea behind this phrase was sex was made for the body and our bodies were made for sex. It's natural. It's what our bodies were made for. 
So why would we limit or withhold um, our bodies from what we're made for? Besides, the other part of that is this idea that God will destroy them both. Besides, God's going to destroy our bodies in the end anyways. So what does it matter? We're going to get a new body. What does it matter what our body does here in this, um, this world? So, th- so the idea was this. Grace gives us freedom. Sex is a natural thing. Come on, Christians, let's live it up. And that's the vibe that this church had, and they were proud of it. They weren't just hiding these things. They were proud of our sexual freedom. We get to live however we want. We've been freed by Jesus. We've received grace. We can live how we want. And that was the vibe that was going on in, um, in the church. So, um, so why worry about right and wrong regarding to sex? We don't need to worry about that stuff. That was, the, that was really the vibe that was happening in this church in Corinth. So let's check out, um, if you're curious, what does Paul have to say about this? How did he respond? Let's, um, let's take a look and see. Uh, and read down through this section of 1 Corinthians to see how Paul responded to this. Um, so, uh, so here you find the quote, I have the right to do anything, you say. But then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, they would say. But Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now it's interesting to note, Paul does not disagree with the statement, I have the right to do anything. He doesn't say, no, 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 you don't have the right to do anything. That's not the way he responds, because Paul understands grace and forgiveness. It's not about how good we are in our relationship with God. That's not why we make the decisions that we make. So Paul doesn't refute the concept of we have the right to do anything. Paul gets grace and forgiveness, but he adds something significant and important to it, something much greater, which as this letter progresses, we understand and we'll we'll unpack more and more and more what Paul has to say about this idea. It might be permissible to do, but that does not make it beneficial or healthy or good or God's intent at all for the way we would live. You might get away with it. That's what grace is sort of like. We get away with a lot because of God's forgiveness and grace. You might get away with it, but that, that does not allow us to be mastered by things, to be controlled, to be compelled to behave a certain way. And if we're honest, that's really how sex works. It easily and often enslaves and masters and compels us to function in a certain way in relationships and in our life. Uh, and Paul says we can't let that happen. So then he, uh, he deals with the next phrase here. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And then Paul's response to that, the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So this statement, Paul definitely refutes this one. He's not letting us get off the hook with this, um, with this line. It's dead wrong. They say food for the body, the body for food. This is what's natural. Sex is natural. It's what we're made for. And Paul says, no, our bodies were made for the Lord and the Lord for our bodies. So this moment, this is really when Paul gets into I think the sort of central question or central idea that we have to process when we're thinking about, um, about our sexuality. What is our body made for? You th- have you asked that question? Have you wondered, what is my body made for? What is this thing that I'm living inside of? What is this body made for? Is it made for food? Is it made for sex? Is it made for pleasure? Is it made for safety or comfort to use, to abuse however we want? Um, is it made for something more than that? What is your body made for? Okay, so let's keep reading. Um, we're going to read a long section here of what um, Paul says in these next few verses. So Paul continues in this discussion. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. 
and he will also uh, he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of, of Christ, of Jesus, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, and whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received as a gift from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So there's a lot of stuff packed in what Paul writes there. This idea of being united with Christ, with once I... Um, I fo- I'm following Jesus, I'm submitting my life to him, I become one, I'm united with Jesus. And so the things that I do with my body are sort of carrying the spirit and carrying Jesus into that act. That's a really crazy thing to think about, that we're bringing God along with us in the things that we do and the choices that we make in the course of our life. But Paul is, uh, is unpacking this idea a little bit or identifying this issue a little bit of what we do with our body brings God along. We are united with Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit within us. And so when I um, am following Jesus and submit my life to him, I'm essentially saying I trust God to know better how I should live my life than I think I know how to live my life, that I trust him and I submit to him and allow him to begin to make the decisions in the things that I do through the course of my life. And so the prayer of indifference and those kind of things are this process that we're going through to surrender more and more and more of ourselves to God's will and God's way. Um, than trying to hold on to it ourselves, And so Paul's getting into some of that kind of stuff. He goes on to identify um, the seriousness or significance of sex. So, we, so, um, so society wants us to think that, um, that sex is casual, that sex is not something serious. Uh, as much as we want to believe that it's this physical thing that happens and that's as far as it goes, that, um, that it's something that we can share you know, lightly with the people around us. Um, But Paul reminds us what scripture has said really from the beginning, that God has been trying to convince us of this idea that there's something far more significant when two people come together sexually, that there is this deep uniting happening, that God designed sex to be more than just um, this physical transaction, uh, just on a physical level. Um, that, and this is not new information. God's really been trying, from the beginning, trying to get help humans to understand and grasp that this is something far more serious than we tend to take it. So when I read um, these words of Paul, and as he's sort of processing through all of these things with this church in Corinth, I see a lot of frustration in Paul um, that this church has adopted the world's and society's views of sexuality, but I also see an incredible amount of compassion and concern, and we encounter this in Jesus. If you look at the stories of Jesus when he's interacting with, uh, with various people, whether they were caught in some sort of sexual sin or prostitutes or whatever, you see Jesus' interaction, and it's incredibly compassionate and gracious towards folks because I think he understands this burden, this challenge that we're all processing through to understand what is our body for and how do I surrender it fully um, surrender it fully to um, to God. And so when we're reading these words of Paul, we're seeing some of that compassion and concern that these folks have embraced the sort of freedom that culture has taught them, but they're sacrificing relationships and the good work that God is intending to do. So the culture that God is trying to create of safety and faithfulness, that God is faithful and he calls us to be faithful, 
that that is threatened by the decisions and the things that we do when it comes to our bodies and sexuality. And so Paul says, flee from sexual morality. Run from this stuff the way you would run from something dangerous or harmful to you. Run away from it. But that's not the attitude we typically have when it comes to the stuff that we're exposed to or we get involved with when it comes to sexuality. So um, this isn't something to just hold lightly or not really think about or process or run through this gospel lens. Like, how does God want us to see stuff related to um, to sexuality? So N.T. Wright, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, writes this, really um, a good way to sort of um, encapsulate this. So N.T. NT Wright says, uh, we humans are so designed in the fascinating interplay of body, mind, emotions, and imagination that what we are and do as sexual beings affects every other aspect of our lives. There's no such thing as casual sex. Sex is far more important than that. To trivialize sex is to trivialize our God-given humanness. humanness. So what is your body for? What's your body made for? It's too simple a thing, too risky a thing for me to think that my body is just for me, for pleasure, for me to do with as I please and not submit to God and his way. I'm too complex a being and my interactions with the people around me are too critical. As a follower of Jesus, my connections and relationships with the people around me, with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with you, with the people I interact with in this world, those relationships are far too important for me to have a light attitude towards sexuality. And that is what Paul is trying to get us into here. That what God is attempting to do in this world to create this culture of safety and acceptance and love requires his people to live with sexual integrity. So a couple of final thoughts um, that I want to share with you related to what we're learning as we're processing through this stuff in this letter from Paul. Um, in, in chapter 6, verse 11, so right before this chunk of scripture that we just read, uh, Paul is talking about followers of Jesus here, and this is what he says. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Washed, sanctified, justified. So those are three concepts that, um, that Scripture teaches about that are really significant and huge, and we're not going to get into all that stuff today. But he is talking about those of you who are washed, who are sanctified, who are justified, those of you who surrendered your life to Jesus. And then he uses this phrase, in the name of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That phrase right there, this is very fascinating stuff, that phrase right there is what was said when somebody was baptized. So when somebody was going down into the water, when they're being baptized, they would say, in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of God. That was a phrase that was commonly used when people were baptized. And it's similar to what people will say today if somebody's being baptized. These words that are spoken over us. So Paul is talking here to Christians, and he's right in the context of this discussion about sexuality, he uses this phrase that everybody would have said, well, that, those are the exact same words they said when I was baptized. That, like, why did he choose to do that? Why in this moment, in the middle of this conversation about sexuality, did Paul draw our attention back to this idea of being washed and sanctified and justified and the very words that were spoken over us as we're baptized, going down into the water and coming up? And I think Paul did it for a very, very specific reason, that he used those words to draw the people's attention back to something that we cannot and must not forget. N.T. Wright puts it this way, when we become a member 
of the Christian family, with baptism as its mark and faith as its inward reality, we receive a new identity, and we're launched into a new lifestyle, a new way of living. That this life, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, we're launched into this new perspective, this new lifestyle, this new way of living and understanding the world around us, this new identity in Christ. And in this new lifestyle, we leave behind society's views, culture's views on lots of different things, certainly on the world's view of sexuality. And so we begin to live and to function in the world as agents of Jesus, living the way Jesus did, loving the way Jesus loved, and doing that for him on purpose. So Wendy talked um, last week about um, love being the sort of central uh, part of the good news of Jesus. And this life, this new life that we're living, this idea of loving well is critical and central to following Jesus. And in the next several sections of 1 Corinthians, so uh, Wendy and Alberto and Matt teaching in the coming weeks, are going to be unpacking and looking more and more at what Paul talks about, very practical ways that we love, think choices that we make, decisions that we make, the way we function in our lives that show this love, that this love plays out in uh, the relationships with the people around us. And Paul reminds us over and over and over again that this love, this way of living, considers other people before ourselves, before we act. So I'm stealing actually a passage from Wendy's section next week. But um, So check out what uh, Paul writes. This is a little bit further in the letter in chapter 10. Uh, and it sounds very familiar to um, chapter 6, what we just read a second ago. So check out what Paul says here in chapter 10. I have the right to do anything. So that same phrase, this is they were using this a lot. And so Paul's like, oh yeah, well, we're going to talk about this. So I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And Paul writes something very similar in another letter to another church, the church in Philippi. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, this is what Paul, this is the way Paul puts it there. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's one of those lines that, like, you can spend your entire life as a Christian trying to figure out how in the world to live that out. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Jesus, over and over, encouraged the same stuff Paul's talking about here, to lift others up, to serve others, to consider others before we make decisions in the way that we live. Ultimately, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, that everything we do, everything we learn as followers of Jesus hinges on that concept, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what is my body made for? Jesus and Paul and all of Scripture agree our bodies are made to love others well. That is the challenge on us in this life, to, uh, to love others well, to consider their good and not just our own desire or pleasure or what it looks like to satisfy ourselves or to be comfortable. So I know that, um, that many of you, many of us, um, have been harmed by, in our lives, by other people's um, sexual behaviors, in some cases even violence. Um, I know that some of you guys are lonely. Um, we all certainly regret our choices that we've made. We all struggle with really impure motives in the things and unhealthy motives in our lives. Um, so about six months ago, I started meeting with a counselor. Um, I do this every so often as I face something difficult, challenging in life. 
So um, I started meeting with the counselor about six months ago to process through some stuff related to um, sexual brokenness in my family, extended family, and things that had happened when I was a child. And on several occasions in the process with this counselor, as I was sharing, just kind of talking about stories and kind of sinking back into some of the sadness and, um, and pain, my counselor would make this comment, like, if you could, if God could give you a small cup of mercy right now, what would that look like? If he could give you right in this moment, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sadness, if God could offer you a small cup of mercy, what would that be? And in that moment and in processing afterwards, it was such a gift to think about God seeing me in the pain and the sadness for all of us, for God to see you there. And then what would it be like for him to offer you a small cup of mercy? And in processing that over the last several months, that idea, and I've, I've had opportunity to talk with other people and ask them the same question, like thinking about that, it occurred to me that when we understand what God is up to in the world and this idea of true, pure, unconditional love, that God is, God is trying to create a culture in this world of people who have true, pure, unconditional love for the people around them that that kind of love, that's a cup of mercy. That kind of love brings healing to us and to others. And God is offering that kind of love to us, and he's challenging us to love other people that way with true and pure and unconditional love. Not love that's corrupted by our desires and what will satisfy us, and not love that's corrupted by a very loose way of looking at sexuality and our own sexual behavior, but love that is committed to one another, to offering true and pure and unconditional love to one another and to everyone we see on the streets and we interact with. And when I think about Jesus, if you were to meet Jesus, if you look at the stories in his life, I was reading just the other day of the story where he's, um, he's at a party and this woman, a prostitute, comes up behind him and she starts washing his feet with her tears, with her hair, and the people around him are like, if Jesus knew who that woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him like that. But Jesus didn't respond that way at all. Incredible grace and compassion. And I think when she looked in his eyes, she was like, this dude's different. When I look in his eyes, I see true and pure, unconditional love. There's no risk for me there. I am safe with this person. That is what God desires for us. And that is the challenge that Jesus puts on us as a community, individually, and as a church. As we walk through this world and people look in our eyes, they know this true and pure and unconditional love to live in a way that has that kind of look even in our eyes as we're interacting with the world. That is the culture that God is trying to, tr trying to create among us. And that is why this processing of our own sexuality and surrendering that stuff to God and asking God to work down inside of us to the areas in which we have not surrendered completely to him is so critical for us. If we ever hope to have a church and a culture like that where healing is available to people who have been taken advantage of in their life, where they're safe to talk about what's going on in their life, to have that, to create that kind of space, that's what Jesus is desiring for us. And I can think of no better way to talk about sex than to get down to that principle of a deep and true and pure and unconditional love that drives everything that we do and the way that we make decisions as individuals and as a church. Um, okay, let me pray for us <laughs> and um, wrap things up.
<coughs> Lord, I am. Um, uh, it's a challenge sometimes when we're processing through and looking and reading scripture, and we run into um, we run into these sort of two thousand year old conversations that are going on, and try to unpack um, what's happening there and how that relates to our own lives individually and collectively as uh, as your church today in this in this neighborhood, in our context, in our city, and. Um, I just I pray that you would help us to um, to see things differently, to function with a a different sort of attitude, not the world's attitude about sex and sexuality, but our but your your view, your understanding, which is deeply gracious, but also challenges us to sexual integrity, to live lives um, full of deep, true, pure, unconditional love for everyone that we meet in every interaction that we have, that we're viewing people that way and trying to understand, how does God want me to love this person? What does it mean to love this person well? And to function that way in every area, even with our own um, choices about our sexuality and, and um, sexual behavior. So uh, thank you for helping us process through some of this tough stuff. I pray that, um, uh, that this would just be become uh, a really foundation for the conversations maybe we have uh, in our own lives or with friends or relationships or whatever, that, um, that we wouldn't be afraid to talk about this stuff because of how critical it is. Uh, if we really are surrendering to you and our goal really is to create a space of healing for people, then we've got to function with a high sense of sexual integrity. We have to function in a way where people are safe and loved and accepted and grace abounds and, uh, and our eyes are just clean when we look at one another, full of love, your kind of love, Jesus' eyes. So we thank you for, um, for Paul, for his boldness and willingness to speak on this stuff, and I pray that you just continue to help us to, um, to unpack this idea of seeing the world through gospel lens, through understanding um, the world as a result of or, or because of Jesus, what Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Uh, it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray.